for me, the natural world became uh, the sanctuary for me as a, as a kid and where uh, I took a lot of solace and, you know, worked out my problems and, uh, uh, but also was constantly fascinated by what I encountered out there. Welcome to the Wild Air Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Bedelt. With me today on the show is writer J.B. McKinnon. James, as he more commonly goes by, is the author or co-author of five books of nonfiction, including The 100-Mile Diet. His most recent book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, is a fascinating read about what would happen if we all just bought a bit less stuff. James has written for a number of magazines, including The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The Atlantic, amongst others. What I really love about James's writing are two things. One, he writes beautiful sentences. And secondly, he has a way of revealing things about the natural world that, as a reader, I'd never noticed before or I'd never thought about before. Things that seem to be hiding in plain sight. So much of the way we eat and shop and, and live today functions in large part because we're able to maintain a, a disconnection from the impacts of, of the things that we do. With all of my work, I'm trying to say, reconnect, reconnect. In our conversation today, James talks about some of the common threads that run through his books and magazine writing. He also shares some great advice for those considering writing a nonfiction book. I hope you enjoy our talk today. All right. Good morning, James. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you, James, was if you could tell me about your first experiences with nature um, as a kid or growing up and how that may have shaped or influenced your your writing. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it, it really directly influenced my writing. Uh, I had the good fortune to grow up right at the edge of a large grassland area in the interior of British Columbia. And so it was actually just kind of a suburban life, basically. It was a the furthest edge of suburbia at that that time in the in the town of Kamloops. Um, but I always had this ability to just walk out my back door and straight out into this semi-arid scrubland, deserty kind of landscape. Um, it was really wide open and and I could really go as far as I wanted to go. I mean, uh, once I was uh, a bit older and riding a mountain bike, I could jump on a mountain bike and ride really as far as my legs could carry me. So. Uh, that became, I probably spent more time out on that landscape than I did uh, at home. Um, I would get home from school and I would just go straight away out into that, out into that world. And uh, it became, I think like, as for a lot of nature writers, for me, the natural world became uh, the sanctuary for me as a, as a kid. And where uh, I took a lot of solace and you know, worked out my problems and, uh, uh, but also was constantly fascinated by what I encountered out there. Mm -hmm. James, your first book, The 100 Mile Diet, which you, you co-wrote with your partner was a fantastic book and a, and a big hit. And I think had a big impact. What drew you to food for that first book? With that book, the, the impetus for it came from a meal we had, uh, at some point along the way, my partner Elise and I bought a a cabin. It was the kind of 
real estate that writers can afford. <laughs> so we were both writers at the time, uh, living in Vancouver. We wanted to have some kind of property, and at least it was very good at searching the you know the whole province for something that we might be able to afford as a couple of young Canadian writers. And what we found was uh, 23 acres on the banks of the Skeena River, about a 15-hour drive from Vancouver, in a place that wasn't accessible by by road. Uh, you had to go in by train or by boat. And uh, we were out there and we ran out of food, more or less. And we decided to piece together a meal off the landscape around us. And when we did that, we realized you know, we caught a salmon, we picked some mushrooms, there were some potatoes that we planted uh, earlier that year that we were able to eat. We you know, found some thimbleberry greens and things like this. And we realized that it was the first time either of us could remember ever knowing where everything on our plate came from and really understanding that connection between ourselves and the food we were eating. And we thought, I wonder if this would be possible to, to extend this experience back into life in the, in the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And that became the 100 mile diet experiment. You know, we just committed to trying for a year to live off the local landscape, what the local landscape had to offer us, uh, even in the city. Mm -hmm. were, were you surprised by how much it captured people's imagination? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very surprised, actually. I mean, it re I, we were almost uh, embarrassed to to write about it at first because it felt like such a. Uh, I mean, we really just kind of felt like <clears throat> felt like freaks. The experience of practicing it made us feel like freaks. I mean, we'd go to grocery stores and say, "Where did these apples come from?" and or "Where did this fish get caught?" And you know, the people in grocery stores at that time would just look at you. <laughs> look at you funny and say, you know, you know, we don't know, like, well, why do you care? Um, so yeah, we didn't, uh, we didn't feel like we were at the edge of any kind of burgeoning movement. We felt like we were total outsiders until uh, Dave Beers, the founder of the Taiyi uh, news site, uh, he, you know, in a conversation with him, he was, he said, well, you know, why don't you write about it? Your writers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Until then, we hadn't really thought about it. Amazing, James. You have this knack of revealing something that's been kind of there all along, but maybe not apparent to most people. And your your second book uh, really did that for me. The Once in Future World. So I, I it had never occurred to me that we live in a diminished world. That there's less nature now than there was a hundred years ago. And you present that in a really striking way, with from whales to birds to a variety of species. Where did that idea come from for you to present that 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 idea that the world is strikingly different now uh, than it was? Yeah, I mean, this takes us straight back to that landscape I grew up on because I was there. Um, I returned, as people do, to their hometowns. And one time, I when I when I used to go back and visit my hometown, I would always go back to that landscape that I. You know, that I consider to be my home landscape as well. And one uh, one time I went home and you know, there was a new development going up on that landscape. And I was <clears throat> pretty crushed by witnessing that. And I went down, I, I thought about what it might be impacting. And I thought, okay, well, I used to see red foxes around. Uh, maybe, maybe red foxes are being, maybe the population of red foxes is declining because of 
these new suburban developments or something like that. So I went down to the, the archives of the town and started digging around to see if I what I could find with regard to red fox observations. And I started looking at, at research into red fox populations in British Columbia and all that kind of thing. And what I immediately discovered was that red foxes were not even a native species on the landscape I grew up right. in. And this just twigged this curiosity about like, wow, you know, like I, I had really thought of the red fox as kind of this ancient figure, um, ancient representation of the wild on this landscape that I grew up on. And it turned out possibly only to have arrived, you know, in the 1970s or 1980s uh, when my own family arrived there. So I, uh, I, yeah, started digging in a little more deeply and found all of these untold stories mm -hmm. of transformation of the landscape that I grew up on. And then I extended that outward into, you know, really the world to, to, to the extent that I could do so. And yeah, I mean, it was just uh, shocking to, to discover the declines in species like whales, sea turtles, uh, you know, beavers, otters, you name it, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, not only diminishment in terms of the number of species, but also the places where they used to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a it's a sad realization I found. Um, the book isn't sad, I wouldn't say, though. And I'm curious, like, how intentional that was in writing the book to not be too doom and gloom or to be all doom and gloom. I've heard from some readers that you kind of have to get through the first, uh, you know, 150 pages <laughs> because yeah, there's an unavoidable aspect of, of darkness around the, the extermination of so much non-human life. And there is a line in there, I think, where I say, you know, I started to feel like I was just stacking skulls in a crypt, you know, every species I looked at, I'd be like, Oh, there's another one that's, undergone tremendous tremendous declines um put another skull on the on the wall you know uh, but then i started to realize well what this idea of diminishment suggests is the possibility of of bringing it back you know of bringing it back to life maybe not maybe not fully uh although why rule that out mm -hmm. but um it offered this kind of positive turn on conservation where we don't always have to be only fighting to cling to the last uh you know to the last wild spaces or fighting to maintain the last remaining members of some uh some nearly extinct species but we can turn that around and start to say well you know we can also fight for the expansion of uh, wild spaces or to bring species back to places where they used to exist or to try to bring species back to something like the numbers that they used to live on the planet in. And, uh, and that to me seemed very, very hopeful. Mm -hmm. The idea of rewilding, I, I found it really hopeful and exciting as well. I, I think I've also seen more recent examples where it can veer into kind of novelty of, of bringing back woolly mammoths or dodos or whatnot. I'm curious if you still feel that, um optimism around rewilding and the opportunity that it presents i, I absolutely feel the optimism around the opt opportunity it represents uh but i think that it's it, you know it hasn't become um the scale of movement that it has the potential to become and which is not so surprising i, mean, I often think about 
where we were at, say, at the beginning of the of the 1900s. I mean, if you beam yourself back to the year 1900, there are so many species and so many places uh, that you would just assume were going to be destroyed and erased from the face of the earth. And that's because a, you know, a true modern movement of conservationism had not had not begun uh, or, or was just in its earliest stages. And so in that following century, tremendous change occurred as that movement emerged. So, you know, how long have we been talking about rewilding? You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't even say that it is that it has yet become uh, a word that that most people in Canada would recognize. So, uh, you know, we're not very far along in that in progress in that direction. But at the same time, that doesn't suggest to me that there's no hope that we you know, that we will advance mm -hmm. further in that direction. And of course, there are uh, some wonderful examples of rewilding that go beyond the, you know, the calls to bring back the woolly mammoth or to, to uh, clone passenger pigeons or what mm -hmm. have you. Maybe the most notable one for me is the return of bison to the Rocky Mountains in Banff National Park. And I had the good fortune last year to, to do a multi-day hike kind of through the, through much of the park from uh, east to west, mm. and right up at the crest of a, of I think it was actually the highest point we reached on that journey. Uh, at sundown, I watched a, a bison run up through this pass uh, with just you know tr the, that tremendous power that bison Amazing. have to move across a landscape, and uh, you know that was unthinkable um, fifteen years ago. I mean, you right. you would never. We didn't even have in our imaginations publicly the idea of bison as an animal of the mountains. Um, mm -hmm. That you know, our understanding of bison didn't include that a very short period of time ago, and 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 just last summer, you know, I got to 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 witness it in real life, and it was uh, yeah, it was pretty fabulous to take in. James, your most recent book, uh, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, uh, is a fantastic read. It, it's a difficult subject to write about, I would think. I mean, consumerism, capitalism is is like the water we swim in daily. Um, yeah, I'm curious what drew you to it and, and how did you go about tackling that that challenge, I think, of it being a bit abstract of, a, of an idea for, for a lot of people? Yeah, this, I mean, I probably came to that book in maybe the most prosaic uh, way of any of the books. And that was just that at this point, I've been doing environmental nature writing or environmental journalism. Uh, it was predominantly what I do. And I've been doing it now for several decades. So what I started to realize was that, you know, often when we talk about uh, environmental problems, we talk about the, the immediate causes. So we say that we lose forests because of logging, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. as though logging were just sort of a, a recreational activity or something, you know, it's, it's, uh, or we would say that, uh, you know, the deep ocean is now threatened with deep sea mining, you know, mm -hmm. we, we must do something about that deep sea mining to protect the deep ocean. Well, why do we mine the deep sea? You know, we mine the deep sea to access uh, particular minerals that we need uh, for digital, you know, or the digital world, the the electrified world, 
for the virtual world, for uh, the world of renewable energy, even. Right. But these are all things that human beings consume. And you know, why do we cut down trees? Uh, we cut down trees to make products out of wood. So all I started to realize that the root root cause of almost every every environmental issue that I looked at was consumption, the consumption of goods and services by human beings and, you know, all of us. And uh, with that realization, I just thought, well, how can I make this at least an engaging topic to try to get <laughs> into? And so I, the idea behind the book was to kind of, yeah, to, to, to run a thought experiment in which human beings overnight, uh, by whatever revelatory means, decide to consume about 25% less than they were the day before and just play out what that would look like in terms of the economy, in terms of um, our, our own psychology, in terms of the natural world, in terms of how we make products, all of those kinds of things. And James, I have the sense that like the 100-mile diet, you kind of immersed yourself in this experiment as well. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I would say for me, it's more of a it's been more of an ongoing drift in that direction. For this book, I didn't uh, I didn't take a whole bunch of particular steps like I did in the with the one hundred mile diet, but I've certainly through my work as a writer about nature and the environment, I have almost through absorption, I suppose, <laughs> moved in this direction of a little bit of a simpler life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The book, I think, landed at the start of the pandemic. Um, yeah. And we saw this real fantastic lull, I would say, in, in consumption and a busyness and people slowed down. There were, of course, many uh, negative uh, impacts at the time as well. But um, since then, it seems to have kind of picked up again. And I'm just curious if, if you left that book with a sense of possibility that degrowth or, or, or reduced consumption could happen in the near future. Yeah, that's a, it's a tough one. I mean, I think, I think as far as I think about it right now, uh, I think about it as far as I really believe that we need to be talking about that subject, you know, that, that periodically through history, the question of whether or not we're over consuming has had periods where we, we take that question quite seriously and periods where we really don't take that question seriously at all. And we have been in, in a pretty sustained period during, during which we really have not been asking ourselves about, about the actual you know, possible need to reduce consumption. And I think probably the biggest reason for that is that um, we have a different perspective on how we're going to accomplish a better relationship with the natural world right now. And that new perspective is the idea that we can kind of green away all of the impacts of our consumption. So rather than reducing our consumption, we will make everything that we consume um, electrified through renewable energy sources, we'll make it recyclable, we'll make it biodegradable, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the problem with that is that so far there's just not a lot of support for the idea that it's working. So, you know, I would say that we are solidly 20 plus years into the 
the the mind shift into towards that direction and by almost every measure uh, we're doing worse environmentally than than ever before including of course in the area of carbon emissions at a global scale so um with every passing year we start to see that this the challenge of converting not only all of the consumption that we're doing today and the kinds of consumer lifestyles we have today not only converting all of that into something green and low impact in terms of the environment but we have we have to imagine all of the future consumption which is constantly needing to grow because we <laughs> live in a growth based economy and i mean as somebody who's looked at it fairly closely you know people who suggest to me that it's a fairy tale to imagine that we might reduce our consumption are themselves living within uh, at least as extreme a fairy tale which is this 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 almost impossible vision that we're going to that we're going to be able to perpetuate this same uh constantly growing mm -hmm. you know increase in consumption into perpetuity it's it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around how that would possibly happen mm -hmm. it's such an important message and it's uh i think it's a lot easier to write about electric vehicles solar panels versus uh buying less stuff but it's just such a fundamental important uh, message uh J james in addition to your book writing you also write quite a lot for magazines and what i find with your magazine stories is I don't get the sense you do them lightly. Each one is a bit like a, a jewel. I find that it's, it's well thought out. It's a very uh, thoughtful, beautiful piece of work. You don't cast off journalism pieces uh, uh, quickly or easily. I don't get the sense. And I'm just curious if you see a, a common thread to your work through all those various magazine stories and books. Yeah, no, I mean, I really appreciate that, uh, that, uh, that observation because I, I, I do kind of, think that I approach each of these stories as something quite immersive for me. What I think threads them all together, um, it is a pretty diverse body of work at this point, uh, but I think what threads it all together is the idea of reconnection. So uh, the 100 mile diet was very much about reconnecting with where our food's coming from. And part of that is, is really making that connection between food, the landscapes we live in, the health of the environment, um, the stability of the climate, you know, all of those kinds of things weave into the food. In the once and future world, I was really trying to look at, you know, how can we rebuild the sort of relationship necessary with the natural world to, uh, to bring that world back to life around us? You know, how can we, in a, in, in a world that's so diminished that we can't even see what nature used to look like uh how do we reconnect with it enough to want to bring it back to something more powerful um in the world around us and even with this uh this book the day the world stops shopping again it's really looking at where do where do your things come from where does our consumer lifestyle come from and so much of the way we eat and shop and and live today functions in large part because we're able to maintain a a disconnection from the impacts of of the things that we do 
with all of my work, I'm trying to say, reconnect, reconnect, you know, mm -hmm. well, what, what, what would we become? How would we think if we, if we reconnected at all these levels? Mm -hmm. James, any advice for someone who is an aspiring nature writer or environmental journalist? I mean, I think the key thing is to, is to think really hard about what is motivating you to want to become a nature writer or an environmental journalist. And I mean, not just sort of that question of, I feel alarmed at the fact that old growth trees are being cut down. Why do you feel alarmed? You know, what is the, that deep, essential connection to that, that you see being severed in the loss of old growth forests, for example. Um, because, you know, I think mo as most writers eventually discover, you really, you know, writing is such difficult work that you need powerful motivation to do it, particularly books. I mean, they're just so much labor that if you don't have, if you haven't tapped into really deep, strong motivations, it's going to be pretty hard to, to sustain the level of effort necessary. So I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of reflection is is my suggestion. I suppose, mm -hmm. um, it, even if it's just kind of along the way as you as you do your writing. And, and James, any books or writers that uh, are particularly influential for you, or or even just exciting you at the moment? Uh, <laughs> I mean, oddly enough, I don't read a ton of a ton of stuff i read a lot I, I read mostly uh work for my own pieces these days so i mm -hmm. you know i'm not i'm not actually somebody who's tracking a lot of of uh nature writing and and when i do read actually i read much more broadly than sort of nature writing um fiction and philosophy and non-fiction in areas outside of nature and the environment and I think I really just do that because we have to remember that nature writing and environmental journalism are embedded in a very wide world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's kind of been my pattern for some years now. Great. And James, I'd be remiss if I ended without asking you if you're working on anything these days or kind of where your mind is going to these days with, with writing. Um, well, I'm not working on a new book at the moment. I'm really uh, just back to writing magazine type pieces um and kind of through those magazine pieces trying to yeah trying to search for what it is i might do next but one thing i mean i feel in some ways like i've kind of hit some of the big the big big talk topics that i've carried with me through my life and i'm not sure that you know i'm not sure that there's another like clanging bell out there for me so i've been turning towards uh narrative and hmm. trying to find just trying to seek out some of these storytelling variety stories that I think, um, you know, might be able to could become a book or something like that, but at the very least um, flex different muscles than I've used before as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, you know, I think just if I can find the right kinds of stories, then I think it's just another really interesting way to to access these same you know these same themes i suppose that i've been working on for for a long time mm -hmm. 
James, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to reading your next stories come out. I always uh, get excited when I see your name on a on a, a magazine story. So thank you. Yeah, no, thanks so much. And I, I suppose if any of the listeners do want to hear from, you know, get get some kind of alert, uh, <laughs> I do have a, a, a free newsletter that I really just issue um, anytime that I've published new long form. Um, so if people are interested in that, then uh, they can track that down through my website, which is jbmckinnon.com. And all you get is, uh, is the alerts when I publish things. So that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to clutter your email box. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, James. And I'll include a link with the uh, podcast post as well. So thank you so much, James. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my talk with JB McKinnon. If you're interested in learning more, there's a link to his website on the podcast description. If you enjoyed this show, please do leave a review and share it with your friends.